0: corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyon.
1: My name is Michael Guyon, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is uh, the man who was born with his uh, birth certificate as car dealership, first name. Uh, And last name guy, car dealership guy. (laughs) I love it. Uh, I know you want to say anonymous uh, uh, car dealership guy. I think I'm just going to call you CDG uh, to make things easier. But introduce yourself to the audience that You're comfortable as far as who you are, your background, uh, and why why the focus on Twitter. You've gotten uh, some serious, serious engagement lately. (laughs) Thank you, Michael.
2: You know, look, my background, lifelong car guy, grew up in the car business, working through pretty much every part of a dealership. Um, and then over time, worked into ownership, executive management, uh, raised institutional capital to grow the business. And so have really seen the business from the perspective of, you know, a lot attendant, a salesperson, all the way through a CEO and working with institutional capital and the boardroom. And so that's, that's allowed me to sort of morph the two different perspectives, but ultimately just to communicate what I'm seeing in a simple way for the everyday person, but also have enough sophistication uh, where you know it keeps it interesting, and people are really able to you know get a good good idea of what is really happening in the car business. So that's that's more or less my background. Uh, why Twitter? Why why am I doing this? Well, I started the account for fun. Um, I was inspired by a strip mall guy uh, who's now a really good friend, and he started a real estate focused account at the time. And I said, hmm, well, I know quite a you know quite a lot about this industry. Maybe someone will care. And I realized that people really do care because it's, you know, it's, it's a very opaque industry and people don't know what's going on in the car business and they don't know kind of what happens behind the scenes and just has been, it's been extremely fluid over the last couple of years. And so I said, well, you know what, I'm just going to start sharing what I know. And obviously from there, I took it to many different directions uh, you know, I started launching different forms of media. I recently launched a podcast, which you know we nearly broke top 100 this week in U.S. nationwide. So it's extremely exciting, um, and you know something again that I never even planned on doing. So you know, just excited to see where this account goes uh, and, and the brand really over the next couple of years. Um, but you know, just here to share as much info as I can with everyone, uh, and with the goal of becoming this trusted voice in the car business where people can get the most, the latest news before anywhere else.
1: Since you mentioned your start on the sales side, I'm, I'm curious to hear how the selling process has evolved and changed uh, over the years. I mean, obviously with more information, people probably have already a mindset as far as what brand and what make of a car they want to buy. Whereas maybe in the past it was more about the salesman's skills in terms of communicating. How was, how was the sort of
2: selling process evolved uh, over the last several years? Yeah. So you'd be surprised. I mean, it's so first of all, most customers and I, you know, say close to a hundred percent of people nowadays do some form of research or, you know, interaction online with a dealership before they come in. So, you know, we're definitely, you know, at maturity there where everyone is touching, you know, the internet before coming to the dealership or at least almost everyone. Surprisingly, you still see that, you know, regardless of how much, you know, people go through um, the process online. Um there's still a big aspect or portion of people that just want to speak with a human. And so I think that the the goal is where where can you like I'll give you one example that I was found fascinating, but I, I forget the exact stab, but you know, Carvana's call center, Carvana, right? The the digital way to buy a car or the online way to buy a car is is, is absolutely massive. It's like one of their biggest departments or something. And so the point here being that, you know, yes, like people will buy online or they want to do a large portion of the transaction online, but they're still making a large purchase, $20, 30000 dollars And you know, you want to at least, you know, be in touch with a human at certain points, or at least whenever you want to speak with the human, right? Not through a negotiation or something, maybe, but at a certain point just to get comfortable. So I think one thing that's really interesting when I launched the account, again, I was I just love testing different things. You know, it's like it's um just different services products like i love you know starting new things and, and i've done a lot of this on twitter as anyone here who's followed me for a while will know so i launched a car buying service earlier this year which was very short lived but it will you know hopefully it will come back with much better and much better service soon but we'll get to that later more importantly um i launched this car buying service early uh, early in the year and i could tell like you know people were first of all people signed up for it like crazy but more importantly The reason people signed up for it—that was what interested me. I said, "Well, what's why?" And it was clear that people signed up for it because they trusted me. And I think that if more dealers simply put out, you know, value and educated people and with transparency, then they would, you know, ultimately, you know, they would become a lot more successful because that's what people want out. Is think about yourself, right? Like, if someone tells you their playbook, they share the inner workings, right? Like, ultimately, you trust them. You want to give, give them your business, and so. I think that's really been my playbook, really simple playbook, just be be open, be honest, be authentic. Um, And i am trying to be very authentic. You know, I say some things that sometimes are controversial, and sometimes that are just plain dumb, uh personal stuff that is, but I'm just being myself, right? Like I can't run this account and do it for many years to come. If I can't once in a while tweet about, you know, me having a funny story while I'm pooping and the kids are crying outside the door. So I just try to keep it real, keep it authentic. Be myself, and then you know, bring value along the way. To
1: be clear, you're not pooping now
2: during this Twitter space. You don't know that. That's true. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no <I'm not>. okay. <laughs> Michael, I, I got, I got to keep you on your toes. <laughs>
1: no, 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 well, that a, that's a good transition to the word uh, uh, opaque, which you you threw out there for car <laughs> dealerships. I, pr- I try to best in transitions. Um, of well, this this point about kind of the uh, the opacity, so to speak, of of the space. All right. So first of all, I, I, full disclosure, I don't really track this very often. I'm actually not a, a super hardcore. Car guy by any means, um, but I am uh, curious to, to, to learn more about why you say this part of the economy is opaque. I mean, people see the car, they see the sticker, they see the price, they go in, they see the car, they test drive the car, they
2: see it online. Why did you use that word opaque? Yeah, look, the first of all, dealers make money in many different ways, and some of those ways, like you know, a, a price of a car may be a pretty transparent commoditized thing. Right, you go online. Again, assuming it's, it's the right price and there's no markup added in the back end or a different or fee that's not disclosed, then you know that's the price of the car. But when it comes to the behind the scenes, you know how does the lending work do le- do dealers get paid from lenders and the fi- and the financing and the aftermarket products that you're offered to purchase should I buy them? Should I not buy them? It's just such an infrequent purchase the average person you know i think the stat is like roughly 1 in 10 people buy a car each year and so you know yes lots of people buy many cars each year but it's still an infrequent you know purchase that happens once every 4 to 6 years on average and so you know it's just something that people are not as comfortable with and it, it's it's constantly changing or certain elements are changing but still people don't really know what's happening behind the scenes and it's also an extremely discretionary purchase right it's like arguably the second largest purchase most people make in their lifetimes And so, you know, you don't want to fuck it up. You know, you don't want to get stuck with a bad product. You don't want want to get into bad terms. And so I think that, you know, people want that trusted voice on their side and at least to arm themselves with some knowledge. And, you know, typically you see that a consumer before they make that purchase, they've done at least like 30 days of homework research. They more or less know what they want. And then they're coming to the dealership well more prepared than any salesperson, right? Because you've like dug in onto that 2018 Toyota Corolla, like really, really well. You know everything about it. You know shit. Where like the, the 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 piece from the left fender was manufactured, probably the salesperson doesn't know that. It's you know. Yes, you have some really specialist salespeople that know you know their products extremely well, but you know that's that's more rare nowadays. And so you really get a consumer that's more well prepared on on the product, and then they're coming to the dealership. But what they don't know as much is really the inner workings. And, you know, should they buy this? Should they do that? Should they get financing here? Should they go to their credit union? Or, you know, many, many other questions that I get asked all the time. So it used to be the case that, you know, if you want to know where the economy is going, uh, you
1: would track Ford or GM, right? You'd look at the behavior of the auto companies because they were a big driver, pun intended, of economic activity, growth, signal. Talk about how how has the importance of the auto industry changed in the last,
2: you know, several decades from more from a signaling perspective on the economy? Yeah, I mean, it's been tremendous. I think, and even if you just look at the last three years, right, the auto industry has been an um, in, in, insanely powerful leading indicator for the economy. And from everywhere, I mean, you have lending, um, you know, you have just CPI inflation with, with inventory vehicles. It's a, it's a pretty important component. And so I feel like the last couple of years since COVID, the auto industry has really become this kind of focal point and for good reason. I mean, you know, the cars have, Uh, Just in the way they've appreciated, it's just been, you know, a a shock for many people. Um, And it's a completely different market than we have today than we had three years ago. You know, used cars, new cars are both up roughly 40 to 50% over the last couple of years. You know, today in dealer inventories alone, you have like 30% fewer cars than you did a year ago. And so, you know, we're seeing more pricing pressure on the use side. And I think, but, you know, that's just too specific. Um, stats that I'm, that I'm mentioning but overall the car business has it's always been an indicator for the economy but in times like this it's it's a massive indicator especially when you know everyone is looking so close to stuff like inflation all
1: right so and, and so let's let's expand on that in terms of you know the kind of the current state of uh, the automobile industry and let's let's distinguish between the used and used side of things um I, I would be curious to know if there's maybe a, a different signaling message when you look at used prices versus
2: versus new uh, cars? I don't know if there's a different signaling message. I think that what's important to know is that, look, new, new versus used is very different, right? Because you need new cars to be bought in order for them to become used cars. And if new cars weren't purchased over the last three years, or if fewer car, new cars were purchased, or if fewer cars were leased, then inevitably you're going to have an issue on the used side, which is what we're facing right now. Right. I just mentioned that there's, you know, dealer inventories are down and depleted and it's causing real issues. Rates is causing real issues. But I guess if we just have to, you know, if we take a step back and, you know, people are like, okay, well, what the hell is going on right now? Right. I'm an alien. I just fell on earth. I have no idea what's going on. Give me kind of like the the snapshot. Well, new cars are improving. I think overall new cars are, they've been consistently improving. New car production has been consistently improving. It's not It's not equal across the board. I've mentioned that many times, right? Because you have certain manufacturers where demand is extremely high and they're underproducing. And so the two, two of those forces combined, such as, let's say, Toyota, they are, it's still keeping inventory extremely low for them. And so they're still, you know, very much in short supply. But on an average um, across the nation, you are seeing that new cars are starting to rebound. And, uh, you know, right now, actually in March, I I just tweeted this out uh, in March was the first time in over 20 months where the average new car was sold at MSRP or below. And so, you know, it's really good news because we're seeing consistent progress on that side. And, you know, overall, you're just seeing that new car dealers are bearing out really well. Our franchise dealers, you know, the, there's no shortage of new car buyers, but it's also important to remember that, you know, other than just the purchase itself, you know, new car franchise dealers have other revenue drivers, profit centers. And so we'll get into that shortly. Uh, on the use side, though, why, so new side is new side is looking pretty good, but the used side is not looking as good at all. We're just now getting into that point where it's been three years since we had lockdowns and shutdowns and all that and so you know used inventory is continuing to drop or at least available inventory as i mentioned Rough, roughly we're right now down about thirty percent year over year, close to two million used used cars in inventory um, in, on 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 in dealer inventories now. You have to remember another thing, right? These two, so we were starting with 2 million cars on, on used car dealer lots. But the other issue we're having is that those 2, two million cars are not all you know $20,000 cars or $15,000 cars. You know, like most of them are above that and they're more expensive. And you're running into a challenge here where the average used car interest rate or used car loan interest rate in the US today is 14%. Right, it's just wild when you think about it. That's the average, of course, not median, but it's still extremely high. And so, when you couple record high interest rates, um, you know, low, just you know, fewer cars in dealer inventories, used cars available altogether, and you add the pressure on used car dealers themselves, such as inventory carrying costs are rising, um, financing availability is declining for consumers, all these forces together have just brewed this perfect storm, which I'm going through in real time right now, and it's really, really painful. But we're seeing it's just it's extremely tough to sell used cars. And so, you know, the used, car, the used car market is not in a great state, although prices have held up. I think that's the only, you know, like imagine if prices right now dropped like 20% in three months, like that would be just a disaster um, across the industry. But I think that's the only thing that has at least, you know, the fact that there's been sh- so short supply, it sort of buoyed prices a bit and, you know, helped kind of used car uh, dealers get through this, this slump of the last couple quarters.
1: We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Gaia here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report/leadlaglive and get an exclusive thirty percent off on your subscription. Don't miss out, level up your investment game with the lead lag report. And now, back to our discussion. But a lot, I I gotta assume a lot of that was just pulled forward from the insane demand post-COVID, coupled with the supply chain disruptions in general and all these headlines that we saw, you know, around how used car prices were selling for more than uh, new car prices of the same make and model. Uh, So uh, when does that, that dynamic
2: maybe sort of, uh, run it course. So I don't know. I think that's, you know, your guess is as good as mine. What I can tell you, again, if you're looking at like the, you know, the quote unquote experts, the economists, they're claiming, you know, Cox Auto, um, which is, you know, massive automotive conglomerate enterprise, they put out uh, one of their analysts said stated like 2026. And that you know, they're anticipating that the used car madness starts to, you know, ease. And I, I don't really know what that means. Or we get back to equilibrium um so it's it's super hard to tell on the used car side because it's again it's so dependent on the new car side but you know it's we're going to have to see how if if there's a massive drop in demand then that could impact it um you know other things could impact it if rates continued rising but at the end of the day your your average used car is still cheaper or less expensive than your average new car and again i'm not referring to you know like a a super mini um you know like just a micro car where you can fit people and you have no trunk space, right? Like people need, people have families, people can't just buy these like super small cars. And so, you know, they're going to, they, they need a sedan at the minimum, you know, four door full size sedan. And so that type of vehicle, you know, if you're getting it for 20, 25 K used, it's still cheaper than if you were to go buy it new. And so that's, what's keeping the used car market also afloat. The fact that, you know, new car production costs have risen. And so, you know, when new car production costs rise, then you just can't expect that used car prices will ever get back to what they were pre-COVID, although we should expect them to decline. How much of that um, demand for used cars is
1: generational in the sense of you know younger generation wanting to simply reuse things that are already created because it's you know, maybe better for the environment than, than constantly supporting new production? I, I got to assume there's at the margin some demand that comes from that
2: sort of mindset. I, you know, I th- I don't think so at all. I mean, I think it's a very, it's a very, you know, utopian perspective. I think, you know, we're living in a reality where people need four wheels to do something, especially people that are buying these, right? Because look, the new car has become sort of like a luxury good, right? If you look at, if you look at, um, you know, just in December, nearly one in six car buyers that financed the car paid over a thousand dollars a month and, I, wanted, I think it was one in four cars that were sold, had an MSRP over $60,000, right? If you go back like five years ago, that was one in 13, right? So one in four buyers or one in four cars that was sold in December had an MSRP over 60,000. Five years ago, that was one in 13. So the point I'm trying to make here is that the new car has sort of become like a luxury good, right? It's no longer like anyone can just you know, buy a new car and they're not, you know, any cars they're cheap. I mean, the thing is up like 50% in the last couple of years right? And so I think the reality is the used cars simply for, you know, everyone that can afford that. And frankly, I think it's people that have much fewer options, right? I think the people that are maybe looking for that, you know, I want to go green or this or that, like, they're more likely to buy, you know, maybe a new EV or something. Um, and EVs just had a record quarter in Q1. There was about over 250,000 of EV sales in Q1. That's an absolute record quarter. And so EVs are also, you know, on the rise, of course, there's lots of, you know, government, um, a, a government uh, backing it up, and with the, the rebate and all that. But nonetheless, you know, I think that just the used car is where anyone is flocking that needs affordable four wheels, and it's also coming at the. You know, they're also buying a, a shittier product. I mean, nowadays, you use you, you know, we used to sell. I'll give you an example from our our dealership. We used to sell used cars that our average used car, let's say, had it was like an off lease car, right? Forty thousand miles, thirty five. Three years old now, in order to you know to manage through affordability, you have to go deeper, right? You have to sell that five, six year old car, maybe it's got 70, 80,000 miles. You have no choice because the demand is there, but the supply is not there, right? And that's the biggest issue you're having. If you gave me today, you know, a thousand cars that were decent shape, quality, you know, decent miles around, um, you know, around 20 grand, I mean, I would sell all of them, but you can't get it. And so that's the issue we're having, and couple that with. Financing and available, you know, just consumer um, fin- availability of financing for consumers, which continues to just shrink and or, and narrow, and and just you know all that makes this perfect storm where it's just a really tough used car market. All
1: right, let, let, okay, so that, that's actually a good transition. Uh, so I want to hit on that auto lending point. L- let's expand on that a bit more. Um, first of all, when did the the auto lending side start to uh, become less? Available in general. I saw the tweet that you put out. I shared shared the nest around Capital One pulling inventory lines of credit. Um, I assume we're going to see probably more of that. But lay out some of the some of the historical dynamics of uh, auto lending, how it works for those that are not familiar,
2: as far as the opacity on the back end uh, and what's been happening more recently. Yeah, happy to. And I'll you know throw a quick plug to I did do a podcast on this and it's in my link in bio. So follow along. There's a, a really good episode coming out on Friday, which I think you'll find super interesting. Um, but yeah, so I've been speaking a lot about this. And I, like I said, m- my goal is, you know, I share, I, a lot of information comes my way. And I, I look at myself sort of like a filtering mechanism, right? It's sort of the point we've gotten to, right? Where it comes to me, I filter, I look at the data, I look at the anecdotes, I share it with the world, right? Because obviously I have this great reach and it really does get lots of exposure once I put it out on Twitter and wherever else. And so I was speaking and, and I'll give an overview on lending how that works as well. But specifically with, you know, what I was chatting about um, the other day was I was just saying, hey, Capital One is pulling out of um, floor planning, which all that means is a fancy term for like a, an inventory line of credit for a dealer, right? Because dealers, at least most dealers don't own their inventory. Um, they have it on a line of credit and, you know, they pay a certain percentage to the floor plan lender and, and then they sell the car and they pay them back. And so, you know, around December, I would say... We started seeing that credit began to tighten. The credit was still, you know, the pretty average or, you know, consistent all the way through Q4. But then December, we started seeing credit start to tighten. Now, at the same time, you have to remember that in 2022, used car prices or values actually fell every single month for the entire year right? And so it was like, okay, like, what is happening? Like, is this going to ever change turn around? Well, suddenly in January, used car prices started rising again, your guess is as good as mine, why that happened, we could just be driven by seasonality, you know, dealers stocking up, um, you know, people got through the holidays, many reasons. But the point is, prices started rising again. Now, lenders started to really tighten their belt around that time. And I would say capital one auto finance, which is a major player in auto financing was probably the You know, on the forefront of that, they tightened their belt the fastest and the most, really, the earliest. And so, in the in the last couple of months, we've seen a you know a lending continue to tighten, specifically on the you know used car segment or more of like near and subprime consumer segment. If you look at the data, surprisingly, it, it would tell you that credit has actually loosened for car buyers. But it's a very important distinction that that's only the case on the new car side. And it's not on the use car side. The use car side has actually gotten a lot tighter because the use car side skews towards a more near prime or subprime buyer. And so credit has gotten a lot tighter. I mean, I'm sure you saw the Wall Street Journal report the other day, where it was like credit in, in March or so in the last two weeks of March got tighter by like $100 billion or some crazy number. Sorry, not sure, I I I I
1: was thinking as we were saying that it's like that's actually a really interesting distinction. I hadn't made that, that point, but basically what you're arguing is that there's a there's almost like a, a a repricing of default risk that's happening to your point on the used car side of things, because the, the nature of those buyers are likely to be more indebted, have more risk. So there's a, a credit widening uh, spread effect that's
2: happening. Yeah. I mean, a hundred percent. And I, all these lenders are tight. Now, remember dealers, you have to think a used car dealer, right? Even Carvana. And I say even cause you know, people think, Oh, Carvana, big, you know, billions nationwide, fancy schmancy, like used car dealers. Typically, skew near prime, subprime credit. That's just how the world works, um, and it's every year's credit. It's, you know, it's CarMax, it's Carvana. Of course, different operations. You know, some have better credit than others, but that's just a reality. Typically, new car dealers skew more better credit, um, and so, anyways, we saw last two weeks of March just the tightening get really aggressive. And and what Capital One did not announce, um, as you know, being a major auto lender, is that they're pulling out of inven- inventory financing for dealers end of March. Now, why is this important? Well, again, these things are all breadcrumbs, right? It's nothing's important till everything's important. And, you know, it's not one thing that, you know, kind of the straw that breaks the camel's back. It's a lot of little things that compound, right? And so I spoke to some dealers that said, hmm, like one dealer reached out to me from Texas. They're a group of about 15 stores and their CFO. And he's like, listen, he's like, I need to, um, you know we need to refinance now, and yeah, it's, it's I mean, it's concerning, right? You have 90 days to go refi, um, and you have to find you know another lender in this you know tightening environment. It's 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 tough, and so and he's not the only one. I mean I spoke to other people as well, but I think the point is like these are all breadcrumbs that show you kind of where we're heading. And when when rates rise and all these things happen, right? Like the demand is still there, people will still come to shop. But when floor planning, right? When dealers don't have access or capital to acquire inventory. That's when you really start to see prices decline now, Capital One is not a major player in floor planning they're they are a player, and you know we've shopped them before as well, like we've spoken with them, so they're a serious player um and they're also very selective but again, it's just another th- important thing to know that you're seeing this continue you know continued tightening across the board and it's disproportionately impacting the used car side of the business and so that's where I think most of the risk is today uh, because look new car dealers, franchise dealers they have you know, they get especially on the new cars, right? They get floor plan assistance. They work with their, you know, with their main, their the car manufacturer. So let's just say, you know, Honda or Nissan or whoever. They work with them, and you know, there's their floor planning credits. Um, it's 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 a lot easier and it's a lot less expensive to floor it to you know finance this inventory. But it's much it's very different for on the used car side, and you know, you're really relying on that in order to keep your operations going. I'm I'm going to probably test this
1: myself because that goes back to the earlier question about the signaling effect being different among used cars and new cars be and and everything you're saying makes a lot of sense to me if it's if it's a tell on the subprime you know type of buyer and if it's a tell on a degree of spread widening between credit availability of new cars and used cars because of the type of buyer there might be a leading aspect to that you know when it comes to risk assets in general that's sort of where my mind is going and hear you
3: We'll be back after a quick break.
2: Yeah, look, it's been a problem for 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 over a decade, I would tell you. And and I can tell you also anecdotally, like that since from the last couple of years, like you could just tell that lots of people on the team are burnt out. I see this, you know, I have people that have been with us for, you know, like ten years, seven years, and just, you know, the last year, since twenty twenty one, and the craziness, you know, the volumes, I mean, you know, technicians are burnt out. And, you know, it's, it's not everyone, of course, but the people that, you know, the, the master techs, the, the vets, they're tired. Um, now more importantly on, you know, incoming new talent. Yeah. I mean, if you are, you know, like as a used car dealer, the like service is not, it's not a, we don't do retail service. It's not a big part, um, of our business, right? We mostly work on our cars in order to retail them. Of course, the franchise dealer is a, just a huge revenue driver for them. Um, and it, it's a great one, right? With nice fat margins, but it's, you definitely have this issue of just, you know, talent. And I think the best, um, the best kind of fixed operations directors or service directors that I've been exposed to are working with the trade schools, training them young, bringing as many people as they can for apprenticeships, you know, offering overall a really good work environment and ability to learn and grow. And, you know, they're doing fine, you know, they have the people because it's a, it's a good, it's a good work environment. Um, so I think, look, there, there's always going to be this kind of dispersion, and you're always going to have some dealers that are struggling and others that are able to retain that talent and, and, and get new talent. I think the other thing that I'm looking at is, um, like, there's a company that I'm a, I'm a small LP in, and they're called RoboTire. and this is just one example. There's other companies that do, you know, different things, but like for example, what they're doing is they're actually um, they built this robot that replaces tires. Right, and so it's it's pretty remarkable. It's all it's already being commercialized. If you Google it, you can see a video of how this works. But you know, there's new technology emerging, which is going to you know hopefully lighten the load. Um, you know, over time, I mentioned EVs are sales are skyrocketing. You know, they need you know some less maintenance. They don't need oil changes and stuff like that. Of course, they need other types of maintenance. But the point is, that, you know, the, there, there are different types of you know, technological advancements happening, which you know they can at least leave us feeling hopefully optimistic that. Uh, you know, things will work out over the next decade or so. Well, if I've learned anything over the last couple of years is that all our predictions are all shit. And, you know, the smartest person can barely tell what's going on right now. But I think, like I mentioned earlier in the, in the pod or in the space, like if you, if you, if you look at, um, you know, what the quote unquote experts are saying, and if you look at the data and if you just use some common sense, um, you know, the shutdown started happening about three years ago, you know, we're kind of entering the, you know this period of supply where it's likely going to get even tougher um, over the next um, so you know certain period of time. I think the counterforce to that is again the fact that it's uh, cars are just much less affordable, financing is much less affordable, and so you know maybe that's going to outweigh um, the, the 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 fact that there's just fewer cars available, used cars available, and you know that'll bring prices down. Um, and I don't think anyone's arguing that prices are going to come down. I think you know, what I've been say, staying what I've been saying is that we're not gonna we're not likely to see pre COVID prices because again, the cost to even produce a new car has gone up and and whatnot. So, you know, we are going right now there's some indicators showing that prices are starting to cool. Um, you know, there's two major things happening on the wholesale end specifically, which is that you're seeing sales conversion at dealer auctions, uh just started declining at the end of March. Now all that tells you is that, you know, the seller is not getting the price that they're looking for, and the buyer is not willing, you know, to pay right. The bid ask, um, the bid ask spread there, and so you kind of have this, you know, stalemate, and that doesn't last very long because sellers want to get rid of that inventory because you know otherwise it's going to depreciate on on their balance sheet. And so the first thing you're seeing, like I mentioned, is sales convergence starting to decline, which is typically a positive for prices starting to cool. And then the other thing you're seeing is that price retention um, near the end of March at Mannheim auctions also dropped by about or. About I think it was like twenty basis points. Now that's very, very little, right that pretty much means that if you had a twenty thousand dollar car um, and at the end of March the market value of a car was twenty thousand dollars, well, end of March at auction, it actually sold for like nineteen nine hundred and sixty dollars, right Barely I mean, it's pretty much sold for the market price. but the fact that that trend is reversing and you're seeing an inflection point where prices are now going the other way, it sh- it, sh- it signals to you that okay maybe prices are starting to cool. We shouldn't expect you know a significant cooling immediately unless other crazy stuff happens and you know other lenders start pulling inventory financing and whatnot. Um, but we should expect prices to continue declining you know pretty consistently throughout the year um, and you know hopefully getting back into a normal rhythm of you know um, depreciation which you'd expect with a used car. Carmax. I didn't look too deep into this, but I know that like the Carmax auto finance earnings declined uh, about thirty six percent year over year in Q four, and so you know m- multiple reasons why that's happening. But you know it's driven by worsening credit and uh, narrow, narrow, narrow spreads and stuff like that in the markets, and so financing is definitely taking a hit. Again, people finance overpriced assets. They had to buy cars that are older with higher miles. You're just gonna see more defaults and more risk. I'll get to ally shortly, but I also mentioned that, you know, when you look at the industry as a whole, we're actually the default rate is still not, you know, it's it's still pretty decent. I think it's really important to you know stay level-headed and you know, to look at it from a very objective perspective. There are now there's a certain segment of consumers, right? There's consumers that are six days past due. Uh those that's the segment that, and again, this is all like public ABS. Asset-backed securities, like that, that's the segment of consumers where you're starting to see the delinquency rates start rising. Right, it's at about like 1.9%, which is you know higher than it was in 2009. Uh But the t- default rate is pretty low still. Which the reason for that being that you know lenders are working with the consumers, they're offering extensions, and you know we're just we're just not seeing default yet. Now you can say, well, that's kind of artificial. It's fake. Well, yeah, I mean, any any intervention we've seen over the last 20 years has been Artificial and fake, but that's just the reality of the market right now. Right now, if lenders weren't offering these extensions, maybe the default rate would be much higher. Um, But all that said, so, you know, it's definitely an area I'm keeping a very close eye on. And it's also, again, you don't have to be smart to think that, you know, people have less disposable income, household savings are going down, interest rates are going up. We're not printing money left and right and offering stimulus checks. No shit that people are going to, you know, there's going to be more delinquencies and repossessions. It's just obvious. Um, or it should be obvious. So that's what you know, that's what we're seeing, and we're keeping a very close eye on it. Um with regards to Ally, I, I've been public about it, and it's all public knowledge. They have a subprime lending program. Um I would say, yeah, they are picking up some Slack, uh, especially from like the capital ones, um, as is Santander. I think Ally's probably being a little bit more aggressive right now. But again, I don't have any, you know, anything specific to say other than that, that, you know, they've been a good partner, they're still buying, as is, you know, as are all the other lenders. But you're just definitely seeing this continue tightening over the last uh, couple of months specifically. I'm I'm curious, given your um,
1: your expertise and experience and everything in the space, do you yourself invest in automobile stocks or, or are you doing the, uh, no.
2: the sort of, as I say, well, yeah, number one, yeah, I definitely don't want to be like, you know, Fully, just correlated to one industry, one segment, and all that. And I can also tell you, like you know, my Ameritrade, I keep it empty. I just, you know, I'm personally not so interested in owning these equities. I also talk a lot, and I don't want to ever be in a situation where I see something about some stock and then I own it, or I've owned it, or I plan on owning it. I, I don't even want to get into that. Um, and so I have, you know, no no public equities or anything like that, other than you know 401k. Uh, which you know has stuff like that IRA, but yeah, you know, no, I don't, I don't invest myself.
1: Yeah, no, and, and by the way, I, I, I'm glad you said that. I'm also glad that um, you said you made that point. It's like you know, when you look at uh, predicting the future, all these predictions are shit. And I said to myself, you know what, this guy is perfect because he's the exact opposite of FinTwit in the way that everybody often refers to the unknowable tomorrow. Since you mentioned it a little bit earlier, I'm, I'm curious, um, just sort of on the periphery, I'm sure you come across a lot of really interesting technologies, things that might be game changers in the automobile industry and in the dealership uh, side of things. Now, any sort of really interesting, unique uh, things that have come across your desk that really kind of get you excited that could be like real disruptors? Mm, and you're
2: referring just to automotive or mobility and like technology in general? Yeah, in general, right. So this is, this is exactly, I, the, the podcast I recorded this week was with Steve Greenfield. He's the founder and general partner at Automotive Ventures. It's a leading, you know, early stage venture fund for mobility and auto tech, and th- this is actually some of the stuff we discussed. Uh, it'll be out Friday morning, and you know, I'll give you, I'll, I'll just mention like one thing. You know, I was asking him, you know, what are some areas you're investing in, um, and where are you looking at? What's interesting? And and I think it really, he really piqued my interest when he's re- he really believes that from the conversation that. Um, we're going to get to this point where the, you know, subscriptionification of everything is going to come to the car. And I know we've seen kind of, you know, snippets of this with BMW the heated seats. Um, But it's super interesting to hear him as, again, an early stage venture investor on the forefront, you know, specifically looking for these companies that are, you know, at the forefront of this. And like, I'll give you one example, right? We're dealers. So we buy cars at auctions. And when you purchase a car, you appraise it, right? That's how you know its value. You have you know book values, market values, and whatnot. Well, in order to appraise a car, you need to know what features are in the car. Because if a car has a navigation system that's active versus one that does not, then you're going to pay more for it. It's more valuable. And it's we're we're going to get to this weird place where you know suddenly you know you Michael you have a you know you drive some car and you sell it and then you know your car is souped up with every feature under the sun. You pay an extra five hundred dollars a month for that. Or maybe you just activate it during the summer or whatever, and then you sell it off, but then you deactivate all these features, you know, now what we'll you just lowered the value of the car. You know what I mean? And so it's it when you start attacking on all these services, it's gonna be very interesting to see the technologies that people build. You know, like like Steve mentioned something specific. He's like, who's building the clearinghouse for that? Um and and there's other things that are gonna be built, but I think it's gonna be a whole economy. Um and you know, yes, the, the services is are gonna come to to the cars even more so than they are now. You know, you see that stuff like Apple CarPlay, where, you know, all the data shows that people are much more inclined to purchase a car if it has CarPlay. And so Apple has sort of commoditized, you know, the entertainment console in cars, right? Making, make, you know, taking more margin away from the car manufacturers and making every car, every car more similar to each other. You know, I do know that GM recently parted where they said they're going to get rid of CarPlay, but all these things combined, I think just the subscriptionification of these cards is a very interesting area to look out for. And, you know, like I mentioned to Steve, I was like, well, this sounds to me like, you know, like, and, um, as an example, a like Coinbase in like 2010 or 20, whenever they launch, um, you know, I was, I was reading some article about this and, you know, it was a very like fringe thing at the time, right? Like when, when crypto and all that launched, it was like, what, what is this? You're building a marketplace to trade these like virtual currencies. And then boom, like, they went public a couple of years ago at this you know, insane valuation. Of course, they're down since then. But th- the point here being is that I feel like that's the point we're at right now with the subscriptionification and kind of like everything is a service uh, when it comes to cars. And, you know, in five to 10 years, it'll be a much more common thing um, in pretty much every car that we all buy and sell.
1: Maybe for the yeah, last few minutes here, I, I'm curious to hear um, your personal opinion on if we're all going to be driving autonomously, I am very skeptical of these narratives that people are not going to be driving, it's all going to be entirely algo-driven uh, just because people like to drive cars. I mean, there's enjoyment from doing it for a lot of people. Do you think that we're going to have this this kind of Jetsons type of era in, in 50 years where nobody's going to know how to drive, it's all going to be automated?
2: No. <laughs> Look, I, I think that um, it's autonomous, driving it has its challenges and you know technologically and i don't think it's anything we can't solve you know i think at least most of the way we can solve it and we have solved lots of it and all that but i th- i think the next step here is just like regulations and i'm not an expert in this at all i'm just not betting you know anytime soon over the next decade that this is going to be a reality and something that's just like ubiquitous everywhere and maybe it happens in some other country before it happens here Probably doesn't, and the technology will continue improving. But I'm just, you know, I I've I've had the the AV conversation for you know a very long time, many years, and I always just, you know, kind of punted, kicked the can down the road, and say it's just not. I don't view it as any reality that's going to happen, you know, really like something, you know, ubiquitous anytime soon. So I think the short answer for me is no.
1: Yeah, I I would personally tend to agree. Uh, On that, any other um, thoughts that come to mind? Things that you think people are getting wrong, or or maybe not focusing on that they should when it comes to the 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 car buying side of things, and and consumers. The the other part of this, of course, is that in general, we know that a lot of these savings have gone around trip post COVID, so presumably consumers are going to be tighter with their wallet. But anything else that's kind of interesting from from your perspective that people aren't really focusing
2: on? Um, I I just think that you know the the consumer overall, like I said, we're still seeing demand, frankly, like our, you know, incoming leads. So like, you know, in, like inquiries in March was up about 15% over month over month. Right. But sales was down, um, roughly 20 something percent, right. There was a big drop. And again, driven by, driven by financing and financing availability. So, you know, you're still overall seeing consumers, you know, demands there. Um, and I just think, you know, I'll try to try to keep everyone posted as as things happen. I think the, the most interesting thing for me has just been how well the car business has predicted or at least, you know, been a leading indicator for other things happening in the economy. Um, and again, not, I didn't plan on, on sharing info and kind of go in this direction, but it sort of just happened. And I was like, wow, I, it got to a point where I was seeing things happen. Like I would see, you know, in my store, um, I would see in our store, like, you know, we'd outperform and then like, I would look you know, I'd see, um, you know, over some quarter or a month or whatever. And I would see like, you know, CarMax, Carvana earnings come out. And it was like, so similar. I was like, Oh my God, this is like cheating. Like I I see like what's, I can almost predict what's going to happen in the broader market. And then that has implications and whatnot. And so I just, you know, it's crazy how correlated this industry really is and how good of a predictor, you know, you have the consumer, you have lending, you have all these aspects that are built into the car business. And they really tell you or they can, they can inform you and get, tell you what's going to happen with the economy. So that's uh, pretty much it. Yeah, you
1: a, a good place to wrap this Twitter space up. I have to get ready for another one I'm doing at noon Eastern in literally 10 minutes. Everybody, please make sure you follow Car Dealership Guy, uh, at the Ad Guy Dealership on Twitter. And uh, again, this will be an edited podcast soon enough. Appreciate uh, your knowledge, uh, uh, CDG. Uh, I was going to call you Anon, but it's kind of weird to Anon words. when you actually talk to somebody. So all good. Thank yeah. you. Man. Thank you, Michael. Take care. Bye.
3: Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don’t forget to follow at Leadlag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube and check out the Leadlag report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code podcast30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.